The views, information or opinions expressed during the Journey podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and does not represent Wise Words Imaging or any other company. Wise Words Imaging is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy. Any of the information contained in the podcast series is available from the respective owner. Enjoy the show. Joining us on the journey today is Paul Coyer. Paul is, in my eyes, famous for one thing, and I will get onto that in a short while. But he was born 1914, I won't say the year because I don't want to embarrass his age. He's Scottish, he's born in Glasgow. He's a presenter for television continuity announcer, and his career originally began in the 1970s, so he is in his 20s, if anyone's asking, as a DJ. And from, from there, he found himself as an announcer in 1980. Hello, Paul. Hi there, David. How are you doing? Hi. I'm good. Now, I touched upon television presenter, continuity announcer, and I skipped a bit what I know you for. But what was you famous, most famous for that? most people remember for on the television iconic moment was that when i took all my clothes off and bared my bottom to the camera um that might have been one but (laughs) not that one (laughs) i've no idea but then then i can imagine that channel being yeah well well do you know it's amazing (laughs) you talk to people and they say oh you'll always be known for blah, blah. And I go, all right, thank you very much. And then somebody else will say, oh, I'll always remember you from blah, blah. And you go, yeah, thank you very much. Everybody seems to look at people's careers and remember something that really hit them at the time. And that's what they remember you for. So fortunately, I've been very lucky. I've done lots of different things. Um, I suppose in Scotland, I'd be known more as a TV and radio presenter. Um, in England, I'd be known as that, but also maybe for launching Channel 4. Uh, in parts of England, I'm known better as a radio presenter because I do a lot of that now. It, it just depends who you ask, I suppose. Mm. And now, talking about Channel 4, that's the, I, I know I wasn't even born when Channel 4 started, but I just go back on the archives on YouTube and I just listen to that poignant moment when Channel 4 first started and your words... Just as the four, what was the score? It's called Four Score, wasn't it? Four Score, the music, yeah. And he's now Lord Dundas, if I remember rightly. David Dundas wrote it. Yes. He'd come off the back of, he'd had a hit record not long before Channel 4 launched called Jeans On, which mm. was played a lot and made it in the charts. Still gets played on the radio today. And he was asked to pitch for the song along with various other people. And he came up with a very simple idea. If it's channel four, let's just have four notes. And the four notes were bum, 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 and a drum roll. And that was it. And then he expanded that out, excuse me, into a longer three, three and a half minute score and released it as a record. I've still got the record actually. Mm. And on the back of that, I don't know whether it's a a, a kind of urban legend or not, but on the back of those four notes, he apparently bought his house on the royalties of it. <laughs> and he still gets royalties now, apparently, I heard, from any time anyone plays it. Not just by bum, 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 but just if you, he actually gets played, he gets paid for it still, I heard. 
Yeah, and quite right. I mean, every time a Beatles song's played, they get royalties. Every time, oh, I don't know, any song is played, you know, radio stations have got to pay, the PPL, Spotify have got to give them a royalty if it's streamed. So why, why shouldn't he get paid for it? Yeah. And Simon, the guy who wrote the theme from EastEnders, gets paid every time it's used. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure whoever wrote the music for Coronation Street way back in the early 60s, their estate still gets paid. So I think it's quite right. It deserves yeah. it. So the iconic moment, you was the first voice of Channel 4. But did you actually... Was you the voice of the trailers as well, up to the build-up of Channel 4? Because I was looking at trailers building up to the launch and there was a, like, welcome to a new channel and then it was like a space effect of Channel 4 logo zooming in in space. Was mm. that your voice as well? Yeah, we we all had to go at doing the the trailers leading up to the launch. I, I remember we, we did an event which I voiced, oh, which had... I don't know, maybe, and I'm, I'm trying to remember now, but maybe about 20 minutes, half an hour of video with my voice on it in a, a theatre. And I can't remember where the... Oh, it was the Drury Lane Theatre. And we invited all the press and various shareholders and people along. By shareholders, I mean the government, because Channel 4 is state-owned. So we all gathered in this theatre and Jeremy Isaacs, who was our boss at the time, he gave a speech and then we played the trailers with all the snatches of programmes. <laughs> and then we were all introduced, myself and my three co-announcers and all the presenters of Channel 4 News and various other things. And then it was back to work, straight back to base. And we made all the trails that went out on the opening night. And then they said to me, we would like you to be the first voice, which... You know, I thought, are you mad? Are you bonkers? What, is everybody else tied up? They're not available? Are they too expensive? Uh, anyway, I did do the opening night and forever I'll be grateful for the fact that I did get the chance to do it because it's not every day you get the chance to launch a new TV channel. Yeah, totally. And for score, incidentally, if I remember from my research, it never got fully played altogether. It only got played like two or three times, the full length, if I remember rightly. Uh, I, I couldn't tell you how often we played it. I know, I know that, on lunch night, obviously, it was promoting Channel 4, so it was yeah. natural, but I only heard it like twice or three times afterwards, and it wasn't. Yeah, it could be. could be. I, I honestly don't know. Certainly, as you say, we used it on the opening night, because after I'd said uh, the opening words, we went into a montage of clips, which a guy called Tim, one of my colleagues, had put together, and we played the whole four scores through that, showing clips from upcoming programmes. So it was definitely used then. Beyond that, I don't know, maybe we used it after close down that night. I honestly yeah. can't remember. But it was just remember. iconic. <laughs> it's Sorry? iconic just watching the video as well as hearing your words to that and seeing the video. That's just so, like I said, it just brings shivers down my spine. Oh well, that's and good. They they got the they got it right then. Um, see, it's difficult for people to understand. But way back then, nineteen eighty two, the UK only had three TV channels, which were BBC One, BBC Two, and ITV. Nothing else. No satellite. No cable. No Netflix. Nothing. Three channels. So to launch a fourth was a huge, huge deal. And I said to you earlier it's not every day you get the chance to launch a new channel i've actually launched two channels since because in this multi-channel age of satellite and all the rest of it channels pop up every day 
Uh, <laughs> and I've been the, the opening voice on another two channels, two, three channels since then. Yeah, that's right. You've but got... At that time, sorry? One, two, three, three channels I've got listed in. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, it's difficult to remember that back then, this was a huge deal. When we did the opening, the world's press were in the building. I'm not just talking about the Daily Express, Daily Mail, Daily Telegraph, Guardian, Observer, Mirror, whatever. I'm talking about the world's press. The New York Post was there. The Washington Post was there. And we were trying to get the station out with all these journalists all swanning around, <laughs> going to the buffet, drinking champagne, as everyone was. But those of us who had to launch the station were downstairs stone cold sober trying to get the thing out. And you were one of the very first in vision continuity announcers as well. Mm. Yeah, that, that was a weird one because I had come from Scotland where I had done that. I had done continuity announcing. I'd been in vision reading the news and doing continuity up for STV. Thoroughly enjoyed it. But I joined on the understanding that I would be allowed to present programs as well. And somewhere along the line, we didn't, the presenters didn't get the chance to present anything other than we were allowed to do a show once a week called Preview, which was a look at upcoming highlights. And we took it in turns week about. So every four weeks, I got to do a 20 minute show. Well, I come from Scotland where I was doing a weekly chat show of my own with my name on it, you know. And so I thought, this wasn't part of the deal. I don't want to do continuity forever. I've done that. So that's why after we launched in the November, I only hung around for about six or seven months and then it was off. Yeah, you moved to the BBC again. Um, and it says uh, you rent to, you unusually for continuity of the time, Koya could also be seen in vision, usually before close down. And then you became a presenter of BBC One daytime show Pebble Mill at One. Well, actually, yes, I did, but not immediately. I, uh, in the June, I think, so we launched Channel 4 in the November, in the June or the May or something like that of the following year, 1983, one of my fellow announcers, really lovely bloke called Keith, said to me, do you have an agent down here? And I said, no, my agent's up in Glasgow. And he said, well, that's no use down here. You need to get an agent. I know somebody who's really good. So he got me an introduction to this agent called Annie, who was, if you can imagine Lady Penelope, but 20,000 times louder, that was Annie. And Annie <laughs> was lovely and pink and fluffy and marshmallowy. And it was a bit ab fab. Everybody was <laughs> darling. Oh, marvelous, super duper. Well, all I've done is knock the door. Yes, but you did it in a marvelous, super way. Oh, whoa. love, love. Uh, and she was great. She was lovely. And she said to me, um, right, so you want to get away from there. You want to get back to presenting programs. I have a sneaking feeling I can get you something. So she got me a job at BBC Pebble Mill at one. Uh, sorry, at BBC Pebble Mill, the building. Not doing Pebble Mill at one, but doing a summer show filling in for David Soule, who was well-known at the time from Starsky and Hutch. And I don't know why, but he ended up as one of the presenters of this show with Sally James. And he wasn't coming back for whatever reason. So they wanted me to fill in and take David Soule's place. So I went to Birmingham for what I thought was eight weeks. And I ended staying three years because they then <laughs> offered me Pebble Mill at one. 
Yeah, but and that is iconic as well because Pebble Mill doesn't exist now. It's the mailbox. <laughs> yeah, the so, building's gone. Although yeah. there is a plaque. They built flats there, and I'm told there's a plaque on the building saying that this was the site of the original BBC Pebble Mill building. And I haven't, and obviously with COVID and stuff, I haven't been able to get near Birmingham, yeah. but I'd love to go up and see that one day because it was, it was an amazing building. The stuff they turned out was just phenomenal. Yeah. And what was unique, I think, about Pebble Mill, it wasn't based in an actual studio, was it? It was in the old, literal reception of the main building. The old reception, the original yeah. reception, that's right. And I can remember being at school and watching it and thinking, this is a really odd thing. You can see through the windows, you can see outside. This is bizarre. It's a reception area. Um, and once Pebble Mill one had taken off, I'm told I was still at school, I don't know, they moved the reception area to a different part of the building, and that old reception or foyer became the the studio. And when you think about it, it really whoever had the idea, they were trailblazing. Anybody can take the the honors or the kudos for starting something like this morning with um, Richard and Judy. Well, this morning was Pebble Mill at one. This morning was the same thing. You can see through the windows and, oh, there's outside. You can see people going past. And it was the same mix of cookery and interviews and money tips, whatever. So this morning was Pebble Mill at one. I take no credit for that because I joined (laughs) towards the end of it. I had nothing to do with the program being as great as it was or groundbreaking. And now you have this morning with um, Holly and uh, Schofield and, 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 yeah, great, great program, but it's still you're looking through at the outside. So even I think, though it's a green screen, Ray, because they don't want to let on too much, do they? They say it's live sure. behind them, but it's... but originally, I mean, I have done, I have filled in on uh, this morning, and I have been there. And back then, before it moved to its new location, you were looking through the windows to the outside. Yeah. We had people at Pebble Mill who, knowing that they could be seen in the background, used to turn <laughs> up and do all this, oh, hello, mama. <laughs> uh, I remember once there was, a, I think it was a greengrocers, maybe I'm wrong, but anyway, they used to drive their van up and down for the whole 45 minutes we were on air, hoping that their logo would be seen. Um, so it was great. The minimal advertising. <laughs> What's that, sorry? The minimal advertising. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and the downside was, of course, the public could just jump over the fence and run up and start doing this through the window. But that didn't happen very often with good security. So do you think BBC One's One Show is taking ideas from that early outset of studios where you could see outside? Because I noticed in recent years, they've gone from the look they were to the look where they can see outside BBC on the ground floor. Yeah, I mean... Now, I've been to the BBC myself. And I know when you look in, it's not the same as you look out, but it's that that illusion. Well, I do a lot of work. I present a lot of programmes for BBC Radio London, and that is directly above the One Show studio. So as you come into the Peel Wing on the ground floor, on the right is the door into the One Show studio. On the left is the lift that takes me up to the second floor, right above it where I do my radio show. And when you look through the One Show window that is genuinely the outside it's the walk up into 
the front of BBC Television Centre in the centre of London. So what you can see across from it is there's a coffee shop there. You can see that. And there's yeah. an area outside they can cordon off and, you know, if there's a band there, they can put, the, the Kaiser Chiefs, for instance, they played out there for the show. But yeah, and th that's not to do the one show down or this morning down or anything. I have no axe to grind, but yeah. they got the idea from Pebble Mill, which again yeah. is nothing to do with me. It's whoever way back decided because they wanted to save money, we can't build a studio, let's use the foyer and let's look outside. And so much telly has been influenced by that. Yeah, I remember when I went to London just before I immigrated to America, because I had to go to London to do the paperwork and all. I went to the BBC studios and I was just amazed how much different it changed since I last went there. And, you know, the way it was, Lenny Kravitz was playing that night. Right. So they had to cordon it off and obviously, they had to make sure it was safe for him to perform. But at the same time, which made me laugh, about two hours before he was due to perform, there was a protest outside. So it was lucky it was contained that protest at the time because I was worried that protest could have been knock-on effect for the live performance. Of course, yeah, security has to be tight. If you walk in, I mean, every time I walk into that, the BBC uh, Centre in London, I'm still a kid because way over to the left of the reception, once you go in, there's a Dalek, there's a TARDIS, and it's a real Dalek. I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if it started moving and came after me. So uh, I get so excited about things like that. I'm always a kid when I'm in there. <laughs> so you've done presenting, you've done continuity, you've now progressed from presenting, you've presented game shows as well. Mm. So would you say you're a game master of games in the time? Um, I've done game shows. I've done quizzes. Uh, I love doing them. The only thing I would say about doing quiz shows and game shows is that you have to be careful how many you do. I mean, at one point, I was doing a quiz show called Catchword for BBC Two Network. We were recording nine shows a day. Three uh, in the afternoon, three over tea time, and three in the evening. Now, I was also at the time doing the breakfast show for a local radio station, and I was doing the lunchtime network show Garden Party for BBC One, which was going out to the whole of the UK. So after six weeks of doing that, I, I, I just, I'm not saying I collapsed, but <laughs> I was just so lacking in energy. I did uh, a game show for... Uh, Sky. We recorded it in the Granada studios. And I can't remember how many of those we did a day, but it was relentless. We recorded three series back to back. And at the end of that, I was just shot. I mean, it wasn't a question of having a, a holiday. It was a question of just sitting for two days in the dark. <laughs> because, I mean, people might think, oh, come on, the job's easy. And I'm, I'm not saying it's a, a difficult one at all. But it is a tiring one because <clears throat> as the presenter, let me give you an example with the Sky one. You go into the studio and you're given a, questions for that program and you're introduced to the three contestants. You say hi and you find out a bit about them so you know what to talk about at the beginning of the show. Then they say, right, we're starting. Three, two, one, go. The music hits and you walk in and you do it. No autocue and you do the bit 
um, and you're thinking, oh, hang on a minute, what did I say to introduce the last show half an hour ago? Uh, I better make this different. And then you introduce the contestants, you read the questions, and in your ear all the time you're getting a countdown to the end of the show and you have to finish to the second. So you finish, they go, right, that's clear, thank you. You then have to look at the camera and do a trailer for the show saying, join us next on Sky when Mary, Susan and Alf will be going for the big prize, blah, blah, blah. That's right here on Sky One after this. Yep, that's fine. Off you go. You've got 10 minutes to then run back to your dressing room, get changed, get your new questions, read through them so you know what you're doing, come out, meet the new contestants, find out about them. And right on that clock hitting the 10 minutes, the music goes and you back out. No water cue and you're introducing the show, thinking again, how did I introduce it the last time <laughs> and the time before? So it, it is tiring. I'm not pleading that it's as difficult as, you know, going, I don't know, digging roads or something like that. But it's exhausting. So you've got to be careful how much you commit to these things. Because I know my time as a radio presenter, because I did one and two and as a radio presenter back in the day, you had to keep to the time for the news because mm. there's no way of avoiding the news. You had to build it to the right time. You had to make sure, in this case, commercials were played at the right time to make sure it was... And at times, you often think, am I getting it right? Am I getting right? Have I got the show right by preparing? And it got frustrating, but I I got through it. But it's just knowing the timing was a key factor. Exactly. I do a radio show every Sunday for the BBC, uh, BBC Radio Watcher. And every hour coming up to the news, I've got to make sure that I'm on time to play the jingle with 17 seconds to go to the top of the hour. It used to be because you had to hit the pips at the BBC because they come in right on time. We don't do the pips anymore. But what if you're doing an interview with somebody and you're chatting away and you think, oh, flip, right, I've got seven seconds left, then I've got to start this record, which will then finish, and then I'll hit the jingle, and everything's back-timed. And what if you get to five seconds to go and you go, you're go, you about to say, David, thank you very much indeed, and then you're going to pl- pl- play your record. And you get as far as David, and then David says, oh, another thing I didn't tell you about, blah, blah. And you think, <laughs> oh, my God. Um, so it can be stressful, but it's a lot of fun, a hell of a lot of fun. So talking about the records behind you, there are a lot of gold ones or silver ones I can't tell on the camera. What, oh, were they, what are they for? Well, let me, if you don't mind me getting up a bit, hold on yeah. a sec. My, through that door there is my studio. Hang on a sec. <laughs> so there are a lot more in there, as you can see. Yeah. Um, in my little studio. Mm. So I'm very lucky. What happens is, um, so those two you were talking about, the bottom one is a gold disc signed by Eric Clapton. The one above it isn't signed, but it's from the Eurythmics. And in my studio, there's loads of stuff signed by... Oh, the Rolling Stones, Diana Ross. In fact, I'll go and get, there's, there's one, hang on a sec. So something like this, if you have helped an artist, as far as the record company is concerned or the artist is concerned by playing their song on, on the radio, 
the if it goes gold, silver, platinum, they'll want to say a thank you and they give you these discs. So this one is from Diana Ross. Now, mm. this one, I didn't actually, um, you know, I guess I played it on the radio, but I didn't have any influence on it becoming a hit. But the reason she, she sent me this was because it was for my 40th birthday, which Aww. was a really lovely gesture. <laughs> yeah. so, um, so I'm very lucky. Yeah, record companies and artists, <clears throat> excuse me, have been great. And so I've got them plastered all over my walls. But also uh, I've got a couple of things that I bid for in an auction simply because I'm a huge fan. So I've got a signed um, disc from Marvin Gaye to his uh, fan club. He was giving it away in the 60s or 70s as a prize. And I've ended up with it with a letter of authentication from the head of the fan club at the time. And I've got a signed menu from Linda McCartney launching her vegetarian menu at the Hard Rock Cafe. So that menu is signed by Linda McCartney and Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr and various other stars. And that's just memorabilia for me. But for those two things, it's just because I was such a big fan that I actually bid in an online auction for them. <laughs> so who is your biggest influences when you was growing up? Um, well, biggest influence of my life, my mum and dad, obviously. Uh, I was, in terms of my career, I was very lucky in that my dad worked in TV. So ever since I was a kid, my earliest memories include going to the Christmas parties at Scottish television <laughs> and, you know, seeing all the stars there because they would bring their kids to the Christmas party. So I was around telly all my life, literally all my life, because my dad was working in TV before I was even born. So I, um, I guess in telly, my dad, my dad worked in, he was a kind of, he, was a, he eventually rose through the ranks from being a lighting director and became a member of the executive board at STV. And he was responsible for hiring well, everything from cameramen to graphics people to outside broadcast people. He looked after all that technical side. So he was a different side. He wasn't front of camera. And he thought everybody who was in front of camera was a narcissist and just basically wanted to look in the mirror all day. And I'm not saying he's wrong. I think you have to have a big head to do it. A big, big and that, head. And that is how it is in today's filming of cameras. You know, you've got the camera in front of you, but you also got monitor next to it so you can see yourself pretty much. Yeah. So <laughs> There's a downside to that, though. You know, when you go in and you think you've, you know, you've um, you've had your shower, you've combed your hair, the wardrobe people have given you a nice suit or whatever, you think, oh, all right, I look presentable. What happens when you turn up for work and you've still got to do it and you've got a great big spot on the end of your nose or your eyes <laughs> watering or, you know, you've got toothache and it's all bleh, slobbering down the side of your chin. You still got to go <laughs> on and do it. So there's upsides and there's downsides. Yeah, so... If you was to tell someone about joining media as a whole, what would you suggest to them to do to follow their aspiration? What would you tell them? 
Well, it depends what they want to do. I mean, the media is a big, big industry. Do you want to be a presenter? Do you want to be a researcher? Do you want to be a director, a producer? What exactly do you want to do? And telly has changed since the days that we were talking about. Quite a few of producers of my radio shows have left the BBC now, and they've all got one thing in common. They've been very, very good, and they've left to do podcasts. One of my producers left to head up podcasts for Witch Magazine. Another one's doing them for The Daily Telegraph. Another one's doing them for Formula One. So it's, it's strange, the media now, because there's more media than ever, but there's less money around. Um, if you're involved in drama, Netflix has been a wonderful thing, and there's more money around to make drama. If you're involved in anything else, very difficult to to know um i thought well as with any job the only advice i would give is you've got to have tenacity you've got to take the knocks you've got to pick yourself up when people say no to me i mean i one of the things i do now is i coach all around the world well pre-covid and hopefully we'll get back to that i coach directors of companies and how to use the media appear in interviews announce their annual results to journalists or maybe just present at conferences. And so I still have to hear the word no when I'm chasing business. If I'm approaching a client and saying, do you want me to help with this? And they say no. And it's the same advice, which is when you hear the word no, you've got to change, change the way you hear it. I don't hear no as no anymore in business. I hear no as not yet, because you don't know there could be 101 reasons why you're not suitable for what's going on at the moment. If you're a student who wants to become a researcher in telly and you apply and they say no, it doesn't mean you're rotten. It means they might not have a budget. It might mean that somebody with more experience has been given the job because of you. There could be 101,000 reasons. If you really want to get into the media, just hear no as not yet. Pick yourself up and go again. And you started off in hospital radio, and mm. like I said, I've done community radio. So would you say the basis to start in somewhere small like that and see how you go from that? Well, it certainly worked for me, not just for me, but when I joined hospital radio, the guy who was just leaving hospital radio, he was older than I am, and he was seen as the star of hospital radio in Glasgow. He was off to the BBC. It was a guy called Ken Bruce who has just won uh, the title of most popular radio presenter in Britain, presents the morning show on Radio 2, and he's got the highest ratings. He started in Hospital Radio Glasgow. He was leaving, I joined. Joining me at the same time was a guy called Ross King, who's now in Los Angeles and does all the showbiz reporting for the Lorraine Show and ITV's Breakfast Show. Uh, another guy there who taught me how to work the desk and showed me the ropes was a guy called Charles Nove. He now presents The Breakfast Show on Scala Radio. So there were loads of folk there that I you know, could look up to and learn from. So if you want to learn the ropes, hospital radio is wonderful. But don't get cocky. I mean, don't assume that they're sitting there waiting for you and begging for you to join. They've got very high standards too. And you've got to know what you're doing and you've got to be committed to get in there. Don't think yeah. it's... It's an easy, it's just a given that you'll get in because you don't get paid. Same with community radio. A lot of people think, oh, I'll just go and do a community radio show. They'll want me because they're not going to pay me. Well, no, they've got standards. They want something good. Certainly go 
as Ross, I, I eventually from hospital radio started sending demos in to Radio Clyde, the commercial radio station in Glasgow. And eventually I got a through the night gig after lots of knockbacks. Again, not no, but not yet. Um, Ross King, on the other hand, he applied to Radio Clyde to be a Saturday boy. And he used to run errands and make coffees on the sports show. There are lots of different ways, but you've just got to swallow your pride and realise that you've got a lot to learn. Yeah, because I learned that myself. I was a presenter, and because I chose to go away for a couple of years, I lost that right to be a presenter. Yeah. But I never lost the respect of them. I was still a broadcast assistant, but I always wanted to be a presenter. But they said, you being a broadcast assistant is better than being a presenter, because mm-hmm. that's what helps the show more. Yeah, I th- and I think once a presenter, always a presenter, I think it gets into your blood. I think when you've been away from it for too long, you start to think, oh, I want to get back to this. If I've had to give up radio because I'm involved in other things or telly because I'm involved in other things or whatever, or even now my executive coaching, if I have to give that up for a period of time because I'm involved in other things, I do really want to get back to it because at the end of the day it's all about communicating communicating with other people and I think if you've got that need in you to communicate if you want to communicate with people it never leaves you Mm. that's why I'm doing the podcast because this is me doing what I feel strong in of course yeah and me not being part of a radio station for so many years. Don't get me wrong, I still do remote work from, from America and I send it in. But that's me editing. That's not me behind a mic. This is mm. so when I do a podcast like this one for YouTube or for my actual podcast, it's me reaching out to people just to help people and help inspire people. And that's what. I think you as a person have done over the years, you've inspired people to be better for what they are. And you've taught people to be mini used, but you've told them to be, but at the same time, but at the same time, as I learned in radio, you can't be like the same person. You can teach them to be unique, but you can try and mold them into the way you'd want them to be. Well, you know, if anybody said to me as a presenter, what's your tip for how I present myself? I would say to you, be yourself. Don't be somebody else, but turn it up 20% because there's a microphone there and there are cables and there's a transmitter and it's got to find its way to whoever. And if you just sat there and, you know, we're just yourself when you're ordering your groceries online or something like that. Nobody wants to hear that. They want you to be more enthused. So turn the enthusiasm up 20%, but be yourself. And I I get loads and loads and loads of people getting in touch with me. Will you listen to my demo reel? How can I get into radio? And I had one guy recently, I say recently, it went on for months and months and months over the past year. And he kept sending these demos. And I said to him, you're pretending to be a DJ. You're not communicating. You're doing that for yourself. Well, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, all this. Oh, here we are. And, uh, marvelous big hit. Yeah, great. Top of the hour coming at you one time in the chart. Blah, blah, blah. I said, you might do that in a club or something. 
But you don't do that on the radio. That's not, you talk, you are yourself. Do you go to Tesco and order your groceries and say, I'd like a pound of bananas, and, uh, not half good, I have a... No, you don't, so be yourself. So this went on for months, and he scaled it back, and he became himself. And I thought, that's terrific. And then he said, I'm going to take it up a notch. And he went right back to where he was. And he was awful. And I said, look, if you're not going to listen, this is a waste of time. So he sent it to a radio station and the guy sent him back the feedback. You are pretending to be a presenter. You're not being yourself. Exactly what I'd said to him. For goodness sake, pretend you're doing a podcast, not the radio, if it gets you out of being a club DJ. But communicate. So I thought that was fair enough. And I thought, well played to the program director who took time to give him the feedback. But no, this guy got straight back to me. He said, well, what do you think he means by that? Who's he anyway? And but I said, who's he? Well, he's won awards for broadcasting. He's the program controller. You can decide if you get a job or not. Suck it up. Maybe what he's saying and what I'm saying is true. So you can either come across these people who don't want to listen or you get people, marvelous, wonderful people who do want to listen. And the only advice is be yourself. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't try and show off. Just communicate as yourself, but dial it up a wee bit. Now, there was a famous actress who was a community radio presenter where I was as well. Mm. She's called Pat Crail. I don't know if you heard of her. Mm. Well, she was very well known in the 80s for On the Birth and such shows like that. And she said to me, just think as if you're having a chat next to someone on the sofa don't feel like you're shouting at them just imagine mm. they on your sofa next to you and you're having company with them yeah well terry wogan or terry wogan said two things to me god rest them terry wogan said that when he broadcasts he imagines talking to one person not eight or nine million because how can you talk to eight or nine million people if you thought about it they're all different. They have different experiences, different backgrounds, different wants, different needs, different desires. If you were trying to second guess all that, it would be hopeless. So you pick one person and you address them, whoever that might be in your imagination. Mm. And the okay. other thing, piece of advice he, he gave me was, he said, at the end of the day, young Paul, remember, it's all bollocks anyway. <laughs> That's great advice. <laughs> it is. And I can imagine him saying that. It's so unimportant, you know, you can get tied up in all the showbiz and all the nonsense of it. But as Terry said, at the end of the day, it's all bollocks. <laughs> so, um, one, a couple other things. You had your own chat show, Meet yeah. Paul Coyer. Mm. What was your memory so far? Uh, well, before I even came to London, I had uh, Meet Paul Coyer. And then after that, when I went back up to Scotland to do more of them, um, it became the Paul Coyer show or it's Paul Coyer or something like that. I can't remember. So we did quite a few series, but the one I did before I moved to London called Meet Paul Coyer, I was actually in Los Angeles when the first one went out and we'd recorded the series before I went on holiday with some mates and I got this feedback that, oh, dear, it's a disaster. It's terrible. I was going, oh, what's wrong? Anyway, they had put out the wrong show in that, yeah, the pictures were the same, but the sound, they'd forgotten to fade up the applause and they'd forgotten to put the audience laughing and all this sort of stuff. So it was just dreadful. And you couldn't hear me and you couldn't hear the guest. I don't know how it happened. 
And there was a review in the Daily Record newspaper by a guy called John Miller. And I'll never forget it. It just said, meet Paul Coyer. And underneath his review was, no thanks. So <laughs> that's fair enough. That's fair play. Imagine if they did that about um, Jeremy Kyle. Now he'd be when, when the review is shorter than the name of the programme, you know you're in trouble. Um, but the chat shows were great. I loved them. I, I love meeting people. So why would I not enjoy doing a chat show? I really love, you know, you meet the good, the bad and the ugly. You meet great, great people. You meet horrible people. You meet your idols. You meet up and comings who become huge after you've interviewed them. Who wouldn't want to earn a living? So, so would you say that is how the radio is now for you when you do your radio show? You're talking to people. You're meeting up and coming people. You're doing what you did, like you did for the chat show. Exactly, yeah. Um, and also you can indulge yourself a wee bit, so long as, at the, you know, right at the forefront of your mind is, what's in this for the audience? It's not what's in it for you as the presenter, it's what's in this for the audience. But um, I remember my Sunday show immediately before Christmas, I thought, no, in fact, two Sundays before Christmas, I did a chat with people who had new Christmas songs out. So I chatted with Beverly Knight, Susie Quattro, and a couple of others. And then I thought, well, hang on a minute. For next Sunday, why don't I'm sure people would like to have a chat with the classic Christmas hit makers. So I phoned up Midjure and got him to on, come on and talk about Band-Aid. I got Shaken Stevens to come on and talk about his big Christmas song. I got uh, Dave Hill from Slade to come on and talk about Merry Christmas, everybody. And I got tracked down, and he's very elusive, but I persevered and I really, really went for it. I got Jonah Louie, Don't Stop the Cavalry. I got yeah. him on. It's the first interview he'd done in, oh, I don't know, 10 or 12 years. And he came on and spoke about that. Now, I, that hour for me went like that, because these were people that when I was a kid, I really thought were stars and looked up to. But the music still lasts. It wasn't me going way into the past and saying, hey, people, you've got to listen to this. These songs are getting played today anyway. So for the audience, there was a lot in it. So you can have a lot of fun so long as your one question that you can answer is what's in this for the audience? And if the answer is nothing, don't do it. Mm, totally. Paul, it's been a privilege talking to you. And oh, it's been mine. And I'm not going to ask you to say the iconic words when you first opened Channel 4 because I've heard that so many times. <laughs> <laughs> Let me One final thing on those words, right? I've still got the script from that night and we typed up, uh, good afternoon, it's a pleasure at last to be able to say to you, welcome to Channel 4. And I've still got where my boss scored out the words at last. So what I actually say is good afternoon, it's a pleasure to be able to say Welcome to Channel 4. Because she thought that saying at last meant that we had, I don't know, taken too long to get on air or something like that. And um, they wouldn't let me say it live. They made me record it earlier in the day in case I stuttered and stumbled over it. And I totally get that. You don't want to tune in to a new TV station and hear somebody going, good afternoon, it's a p -p 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 pleasure to be able to do that. So I totally get it. But I wish I could have done it live. And then introducing the late Richard Wright, Wright Whiteley in oh, Countdown. 
a star. Well, you see, we hadn't seen that program because it had been sent back for editing so much. The first time I saw it was when I introduced it. And uh, Richard Whiteley has a, had a very distinctive style. And we became great buddies. And when I did my last ever uh, catchword quiz show for BBC Two, I did eight series of that, eight years worth, which was a lot. And on the very last day, uh, I was waiting backstage and the floor manager said, ladies and gentlemen, the number one quiz presenter of daytime television, the man that you've all come to know and love. And I'm thinking, wow, he's really going over the top introducing me today. He said, ladies and gentlemen, Richard Whiteley. And I thought, yeah, right. So I walk out and there's Richard Whiteley. He'd flown up for my last show to Glasgow to sit in the chair and uh, just, uh, you know, just do it for the sake of of being there and saying well done, which was lovely. We went out in the town that night. We had dinner in Leeds after that. And he was a sex symbol. You could not sit at a table and have dinner in a restaurant with Richard Whiteley and expect to be left alone. Constantly, women were coming up and asking. <laughs> he was a star, huge star. So, so he lived up to being twice nightly Whiteley. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> Richard. Oh, no. I have no way of knowing. I don't know. He was he was a ladies' man, but I have no way of knowing. No, but I know in later years, his ties, his charisma was just what made him in. That's how I was best about it. The women just adored him. Absolutely adored him. And uh, I came to, to really love the bloke. He was a great guy. Paul, thank you. Pleasure. Thank you for your time, David. Thank you. The journey.